We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. He's in control. He's standing in chains, having to be rescued from the mob twice in the last couple of chapters, now having to be rescued and pulled out of the Sanhedrin, now having to be rescued from the plots of the Jews. Although he does seem to be in control, when you look at him, as, as you look at the characters in the narrative here, He's more in control than any of the others. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is in in chains or in prison or in jail. He, He finishes the book at that point as well. But yet, he seems to be the master of the situations. It's like when you see parents and teenagers having big fights and the parents lose it and start shouting and yelling and screaming. And the teenager stands there in dumb insolence, not that it happened ever in your household, of course, but if you ever see that, you've got to wonder who's in control because the parents have clearly lost it. And yes, the teenager isn't because the checkbook's still in the parents' house and in their name and uh, the car keys are still in their pockets. So the teenager's not in control and yet the parent no longer is in control. And so who is in control in that situation? Well, it's a little bit like that. You see, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish council, they would like to think that they were in control. But of course they're not. They're only there because of the Romans and the Romans giving them authority. So for example in 2230, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and he brought Paul down and set him before them. That is the reason the council meets, the Sanhedrin is the council, the reason the council meets is because the tribune orders them to meet. They're not really independent of Rome. And they're not in control either because they have such deep-seated divisions within them that Paul is able to exploit the division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and bring them into total confusion. So, who is in control? Uh, the nephew plays a key part in it. The nephew's a kind of funny one, isn't he? Because we didn't even know Paul had a nephew. We didn't know he had a sister. And at the end of it, we still don't know what his sister's name is and we don't know what the nephew's name is. You don't even know whether their nephew is a Christian or not. He could be just rescuing Uncle Paul, who's a well-known nutter. Uh, we don't know anything about the nephew. He just kind of appears and disappears as the smallest bit player in any event that you've ever heard. And you, you wonder about him as to why he is, what he is. And what. Now, of course, the fatalists would say, well, he was just a kind of wild card in the pack that we didn't expect. But those who see God is in control recognize that he's got ways and means beyond our expectations because God has said in verse 11 the Lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified as to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome God has a plan his plan is to get Paul to Rome the way he's going to get is free of charge because he's going to be taken there in prison the way he gets taken there in prison by the, is by the matter not being dealt with in Jerusalem. The way it's not dealt with in Jerusalem is by the Jews plotting in Jerusalem and the nephew overhearing and doing what he does. But the nephew is hardly in control of the situation. 
course, humanly speaking, it appears as if the Romans are in control, and they certainly thought they were. I mean, they're the ones that call the Sanhedrin in 2230. They're the ones who pull Paul out of the Sanhedrin in verse 10 of chapter 23. They're the ones who foil the plan of, uh, uh, of the Jews to take his life. They're the ones who transport him down to Caesarea, which is on the coast. But they're not really in control. They're like the parents shouting. You, you see, verse 27 is just a lie, isn't it? Verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learnt that he was a Roman citizen. No, he didn't actually learn he was a Roman citizen until sometime later when he had him stretched out on the rack and was about to flog him. He, he rescued him from the mob because he didn't want a mob disturbance in, in Jerusalem when he's running it. It wasn't, he's not actually telling the truth here in any of this. In verse 27 to 30, he doesn't even mention the flogging. He doesn't mention locking up a Roman citizen in chains. He doesn't mention his errors at all. And, and look at verse 23 and the seeming overreaction that he called 200 of the centurions, get ready 200 soldiers, sorry, two of the centurions, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. He's rescuing one Jewish man from a Jewish mob who are living under his total control. But he's going to use 400 soldiers plus 70 horses to be able to do it. I mean, if he really is in control, why does he need such a massive force just to spirit one prisoner away in the middle of the night? The, the Romans were living in fear and paranoia in Palestine at this time. But of course, the Romans, like all kings and rulers, are doing God's will. That is, go back to Proverbs for a moment and look at Proverbs 21. I just recited it to you, except I'm halfway between the King James RSV and NIV translations now, and I don't know what the words say anymore. So Proverbs 21, in the ESV translation, which I haven't yet learnt properly, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. See, the heart of the king is at the disposal of God. The king makes his decisions, but it is God who determines the outcome and determines his decisions and will turn him one way or another. That is the character of the sovereignty of God. So the, Rome, the, the Jews are all plotting against Paul, but they're plotting against Paul in order to fulfill the plan of God. And the nephew hears about it to fulfill the plan of God. And the Roman soldiers take him away to Caesarea thinking that they're fulfilling the plan of God to take Paul to Rome. So all these people are taking their actions the way they take their actions, but it is God who is actually in control. He is working his purposes out, even through evil. The Romans aren't in control because, well, it's the history at this point in time. So I'm word or two about the historical background for here. Because Jerusalem is coming to the near to the end of its existence. In the late 50s of the first century, tensions had mounted enormously in occupied Jerusalem. Now in 66 AD, warfare had broken... By 66 AD, warfare had broken out against the Romans. We are here in around about 61, 62 AD. The 
the tensions are everywhere. The full-blown war hasn't happened. It's, it's kind of like being in Palestine at the moment. There, the Jews are actually in occupation over the Palestinians. And so it's different in that regard. And the Jews are still there, but they're on the wrong, a different side of the fence. But there is, there is war in the air. I mean, it's not a place you want to go as a tourist. It's, it's a dangerous place. And at any moment, the whole thing could erupt. And there could be an all-out all out war and one group completely oppressed. That's what happened. For some years, there were these, these assassinations, there were riots. There were, that's why the Romans are overreacting the way they are, because they're trying to keep the, 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 the plug in Mount Etna. They, they're trying to stop the volcano bursting on them, and so they're overreacting. But in their overreaction, of course, it was only causing more and more hostility within the Jewish community. And in 66, the war broke out, and in 70, the Jews were crushed, Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the nation of Israel came to an end, although some people think it was reconstructed in 1948. Now, how much of these events are affecting what happened and how Luke records what happened is a matter of debate and discussion and conjecture. This doesn't disagree with the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture or the truthfulness of Scripture or the authority of Scripture. Because God has inspired different forms of literature. He inspired poetry, he inspired the Psalms, he inspired Proverbs, he inspired uh, historical writings, he inspired prophecy, he inspired parables. There's all kinds of different literary genres in the, in the Bible. And God inspired each of them. But each of the genres have their own peculiarities. They have their own rules and regulations, so to speak, of how you operate, of what you can do and what you can't do. It is the flat earth Bible readers who want to have the Bible all in mathematical kind of logic propositions. The Bible doesn't come in that form. You may want it in that form and you may think that the doctrine of the inspiration of the word of God means that it must be that form, that it's an infallible, inerrant word, therefore it must be a series of logical propositions, but it doesn't come that way. It comes in poetry. Poetry which has within it the capacity for evoking thoughts and ideas without any logical consistency. That is part of the way in which God inspired his word. If you don't like it that way, you might take it up with him someday, but in the meantime, that's what you've got. That's what you've got to deal with. And it's the best way for it to be, because humans can do more than mathematics. Mathematics is a wonderful thing to do. But we can do more than mathematics, and we need to take that into account. History is one of those kinds of literature. When you write history, as Luke is writing here, you have to select which pieces of information you're going to put in and which pieces you're going to leave out. You have to select how you're going to organise this history. Is it by themes? Is it just in chronological order? And what are you trying to demonstrate by your recounting of what happened in the past? He's not recounting what happened in the past by telling you everything he knows, just in a kind of random, every piece of information I've got, I plonk down in front of you. That's the kind of history that is totally unreadable. That, that, it's always arguing a case and a point and showing you how the reader, a writer, understands we've got to the position we've got, what was happening, why it was happening. And so in his presentation of 
the events here, he keeps emphasising the Jewish hostility towards Christianity and the Roman justice towards Christians. Now, of course, that may be exactly true. That may be what happened. But even if it is true, why does he particularly record it? It could be, of course, that the tensions between Rome and the Jews were spilling over to the tensions between Rome and Christians. And he's trying to show that though Christianity was a Jewish religion, it was a pro-Roman religion, not an anti-Roman religion, like some of the other forms of Judaism were anti-Roman. Uh, Luke is distancing Christianity from Judaism in its relationship to Rome while maintaining its Jewish roots because Judaism was one of the very few legal religions in the Roman Empire. So Christianity was legal because it was part of Judaism but it wasn't part of that part of Judaism which caused trouble to the Romans. In fact, the Romans kept on coming and rescuing the, the Christians. It may be that he's recording it like that because that's the way it was. It may be he's recording it like that because he wants to actually argue this case and to demonstrate this point because of who Luke is dealing with. Our problem is we don't know. We don't know anything about Luke really other than what we have in the book of Luke and Acts. That's, that's what we know. And so what the situation he was when he was writing this, what he was trying to prove to whom he was trying to prove it, is all actually speculation. We just have this document before us. And if we speculate that he's just trying to give a Roman whitewash for Christianity, you have a problem as well. Because the Romans' power and place and paranoia is also revealed in the writings of Luke. The commander, Claudius Lysias, in verse 26, he bought his citizenship and is emphasised there, but he cannot understand the Jewish fight. He can't understand, so he tries to involve the Jews, but when they are involved in chapter 23, verse 10, he doesn't understand what the fight's about inside the council either. He's ruling over the Jews, but he actually has no understanding of the Jews. Pick it up verse 28. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged nothing with deserving death or imprisonment. But when it's disclosed to me that there'd be a plot, he doesn't actually understand anything. He's ruling over them, but he's a complete incompetent. That is what is revealed, and the next couple of chapters are going to reveal to us not only incompetence, but complete corruption in the Roman authorities. They were living with plots and assassination squads, and they were really troubled by these Jewish people, and the Christians didn't help them, and there's nothing actually in the book of Romans, in the book of Acts, which reveals the Romans in a very favourable light either. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish council, uh, tradition said that it was the flow on from Moses, 70 elders, back in the book of Ex Exodus. It had varied powers and juris jurisdiction, but was, uh, it was the wisdom of Rome that allowed it to exist. Different empires ruled differently. See, when the French colonies, uh, when the French took over colonies in the Third World, what they did was made everybody a citizen immediately. That gave everybody a stake in the colonies and made them uh, indebted to France, uh, particularly. Uh, and it broke down the systems of government were in the colonies there before them, and so France had direct rule. But when the British ruled the colonies, that's not what they did. The British suborned the rulers who were there. And so every tribal chief was made a knight 
and you know, given a knighthood and a, had a title and a new uniform with lots of braid and, and made a somebody taken over to Buckingham Palace, presented to the Queen, told that he was Lord Chief Fubar of the Knight of the Grand Order of, and then sent back to tyrannise and oppress the people that he was ruling over beforehand, but now with all the mighty authority of Queen Victoria riding with him. Different ways of keeping your empire under control. The Roman way was a little bit like the, 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 the British way. You, you take hold of the people who are there and you bring them under authority, their rulers under your authority, and you let them deal with what is taking place, especially with the Jews. They never could understand the Jews. It was just easier to let the Jews run the Jews. And so they corrupted the high priest. They corrupted the council. They corrupted the rulers of those in authority, the Herodian family. They, they were puppet Roman Jews. In fact, the Herods weren't even fully Jews, they were hardly Jumeans. And so, the Sadducees, well, they really, sorry, the Sanhedrin was really there under Roman authority, but it was so divided in its parties and corrupt in its personnel that it got nowhere. The high priest, you see, which I understand is the point that Paul is making, the high priest really wasn't the high priest. That's why it's irony and sarcasm. He was one of the Roman puppets. He was assassinated by Jewish zealots a few years after this in AD 66. And so Paul was poking fun at saying, well, I didn't know I was speaking to the high priest because he was speaking to somebody that you couldn't respect, a true zealous Jew couldn't respect as the high priest because he was just so corrupt. But there are two parties particularly you need to see in the historical background to understand what is happening. That is the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees are described for us there in verse 8 we don't come across them much in the New Testament. Now when Paul perceived that one party were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, I've read verse 6, 7, I want verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged all of them. The Sadducees were Jewish materialists. There was no other world. There was no afterlife. There was just this world and this life. They were the upper class the Sadducees, the wealthy, and therefore were the Roman collaborators. Uh, they ran the priesthood and they ran the temple. And they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament because of their rejection of supernaturalism. Though, of course, Jesus pointed out that supernaturalism is there in the first five books because it was the Sadducees, if you remember, who came with the trick question about the woman who married seven brothers, one after another, each of which uh, died. Um, and there was no questions raised about the quality of her cooking or the character of her. I think any woman who sees seven husbands die one after another, you've got to ask something about what's happening. But the point of the story was when she goes to heaven in the resurrection, in the afterlife, which we don't believe in, but you, Jesus, do, whose wife is she going to be? Because she was wife to all seven of them. So how, how does marriage work? And Jesus says the trouble with you is you don't know the power of God or the word of God. And then he quotes from the first five books of the Old Testament to show the belief in the afterlife and in the resurrection. The Pharisees are more common in the New Testament. And the Pharisees were the middle class, the business people. They were a lay movement rather than the priests, although there were some Pharisaic priests, who had a strict obedience to the law. They centred more on the synagogue and their leaders were the rabbis. The rabbis are teachers. They're uh, scribes, sometimes called. They're teachers of the law. They were the kind of 
upright middle-class business Rotarians of the first century. You know, they're the, the, the kind of civic-minded people, uh, lions, uh, apex, that kind of group of people who made things happen. Their contrast, though, to the Sadducees was that they accepted the prophetic history of Israel and therefore they accepted verse 8 resurrection and angels and spirits. They were believers in the other world. They were supernaturalists. Now, it is that distinction, of course, that Paul exploits. For in this mixed religious culture of Judaism, Christianity had taken root. Christians at first were persecuted for being Christians, but they had by this time become accepted in part as being truly Jewish, as I was trying to reason with you last week. But there is still this strong contention between the parties. There were, of course, other parties that we're not mentioning here, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Canaanians, the Herodians. There were all kinds of parties in the first century. But being Christian itself seems no longer sufficient for the Sanhedrin to reject Paul. So Paul sets up the division within the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees by claiming to be a Pharisee on trial for Pharisaism. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one party of the Sadducees the Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and it's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, was this a fib? It was Paul a Pharisee. Can you be a Christian Pharisee? Is that a possibility? Well, I take it Paul's not lying because Christianity is Pharisaic. That's what it is. But to be able to argue that, you need, first of all, of course, to remove our prejudice about Pharisees. Pharisees, as we know them from the Bible, are the bad guys. Because apart from this chapter, they only ever are bad guys. They're hypocrites. Especially in Sunday school, you're taught that as a child. Especially as you read the Gospels and come across the interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are always the baddies. They are the hiss-and-throw-popcorn kind of villains that you imagine in frock coats and top hats tying up young ladies on railway lines waiting for trains to come through. They're that kind of character. There is nothing good about them. Indeed, within Christianity, they are what we would call the Puritans. And no one wants to be a Puritan. Puritans are only ever seen negatively in our society. They're the bad guys. They are the ones who are narrow-minded bigots who are concerned about rules and regulations and are full of hypocrisy. And so the only contact most people have with Puritans is when they read the Crucible and they hear about kind of Puritan witch hunts and they are all evil, hypocritical people. Because both views of Puritans and Pharisees are historically nonsense. While what was being said by Jesus about the Pharisees was true and while some Puritans were narrow-minded, bigoted and hypocrites, Puritanism lasted for about 150 years and the early Puritans of the Elizabethan age of the 16th century were quite different to the Puritans that you wound up with in North America by the 18th century. In fact, there's almost no connection. It's hard to see how they believed the same things or could be used the same terms. We know of one particular kind of Puritan, the most negative, and that is the only one we ever hear about when early Puritans if you care to read their literature, you'll get this terrible shock that what they're saying is what you believe. And you keep reading there in the early Puritans, and they're, they're terrific, they're marvellous. And you think, isn't it wonderful that God had converted people back in the 16th century? 
and it's just it's astonishing some of the best Christian literature ever written was written by the Puritans so beware and it's like that with the Pharisees Jesus critique is accurate but if that's all you know about them you won't even understand Jesus critique come with back, back to Jesus Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 and see what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 5 verse 17 verse 20 do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, he says. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. And then down to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus hasn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfil the law. But what he is requiring of us is a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. Well, if you think the Pharisees are narrow-minded, big, hypocritical people legalists who are who split straws and who then to, to be more righteous than them is a nothing uh, that's obvious but this was shocking to the first century listener because the Pharisees were the greatest moral law keepers that Judaism and the ancient world had ever known and the idea that you could ever be higher than them was impossible was unimaginable it was difficult to conceive how you could be higher than them now Jesus in his critique of them shows you the fatal flaw in their whole system and so you have now dropped them down to the floor when in fact they're up on the ceiling compared to many others. These were the moralists. These were the quintessential law keepers. And it was Jesus who showed up their hypocrisy. So effectively of course that that's all we know about them. And the Pharisees were not bad. And the Pharisees' law-keeping was not the only thing about the Pharisees. For they believed in the supernatural. And they believed in the law that Jesus came to fulfil. That is, Jesus doesn't come to deny Judaism, but to fulfil it. He denies idolatry, because it's wrong. He denies polytheism, because there's only one God. But he doesn't deny the Old Testament law. He doesn't deny the Old Testament prophets. He stands with the Pharisees in believing in the law and the prophets. Jesus constantly accepts the authority and inspiration of the law and the prophets. There are many Christians these days, so-called, who actually know better than Christ because they reject the Old Testament. But if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to accept the Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward, foretold the Messiah, the new covenant, the new temple, the new exodus, and Jesus came to fulfil these prophets not to deny them that's why you see the Pharisees were right because they too were looking for the fulfilment of the Old Testament they were not like the Sadducees who ignored the word of God they were not like the Sadducees who ignored the power of God or the promises or the plans of God the Pharisees were right they believed in the prophets and so they expected the Messiah and the kingdom and the resurrection as they believed in angels and in spirits for especially the point of the resurrection, it makes the Christians with the Pharisees against the Sadducees. So Paul, who was raised as a Pharisee, didn't change his view of the resurrection by becoming a Christian. Before conversion, he was a Pharisee looking for the resurrection. After, now that he's become a Christian, he's still a Pharisee looking for the resurrection, but he now knows where it's going to come from. He now knows that it's already commenced. He now knows it centres on Jesus. 
but he hasn't changed his view of his belief in the resurrection or of angels or of spirits or in the fulfilment of the Old Testament or in the belief of the law and the prophets. And so he's not telling a lie when he's saying in verse 6, 8, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead because I am a Pharisee and the son of the Pharisees. So there's not many Christians I know today who are willing to call themselves Pharisees. And there's not all that many who are willing to call themselves Puritans for much the same kind of reason. The world doesn't know enough about Pharisees or about Puritans to understand what you're saying when you say it. But Christianity is Pharisaic. Now all these chapters I'm suggesting, Acts 20 through to 24, etc., 18 through to 24, are part of the complex relationship between Christianity and other religions and other nations. The complex issue of Christianity and cultural imperialism. On the subject of other religions, Christianity is clear. There's only one name by which God saved us, that is the name Jesus. Other religions are man's desperate attempts to run away from God. They are deceitful entrapments which reduce human, uh, humanity's dignity. And so they are attacked in the Bible. The attacks on idolatry and on witchcraft. The attacks on the astrology and on the stupidity and immorality and blasphemy of other religions. Yet not everything of every religion is wrong. Even idolatry, after all, acknowledges the existence of the supernatural. And one religion that is not attacked is Judaism. Because Judaism is not an escape from God. It's not man making up God in his own image. It's acceptance of God and his word to us. It's God's revelation to us. The Old Testament is the word of God. God revealing by his law and his prophets his plans and his actions which Jesus comes to fulfill. And so even the Pharisees who were the enemies of Jesus and saw him crucified, even the Pharisees were still right in some very important fundamentals. For example, the resurrection. So Christianity should never be anti-Semitic and can never be anti-Jewish. Be warned, friends, when people want to be anti-Semitic in the name of Christianity. It is just sinful racism. It cannot be true to the Bible. For the man I worship as God was Jewish. It all behoves me, therefore, to be anti-Jewish, per se. Now, Judaism is part of God's revelation to us. And the law and the prophets are part of the word of God to us. Yet, in the broader politics of Israel and of the world, Christianity is much more adaptable and flexible. You see, the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill Paul and the Roman commander who doesn't know what to do with Paul all have the same problem of how do you handle Christianity? For Christianity is not Jewish and it's not Roman. It's not imposing and it's not denying these cultures. It will question aspects of every culture but it creates not one alternative for it is highly adaptable. You can be a Jewish Christian, you can be a Roman Christian. And so as a Jewish Christian you can live culturally quite differently to your friends who are Roman Christians who will live quite differently culturally to your friends who are Indian Christians or because Christianity has an enormous flexibility to adapt to all cultures. And yet, Christianity always challenges every culture.
for it points to the sinfulness of all humanity. Behind and above all of these, we know who is in control. For none of these cultures are a real threat to Christ and to us in Christ because the Lord is working his purpose out through all of them. We have no great love for totalitarianism, be it on the right with Adolf Hitler, be it on the left with uh, Joe Stalin. Christianity would critique totalitarianism both sides. We have no great love for capitalism and no great love for socialism. You can be a Christian capitalist, you can be a Christian socialist. But you would never be committed to either in the long run be committed to either in the long run because neither are full expressions of Christianity. There is truth in both, there is falsehood in both, you can be either, but that's not what Christianity is about. When all Christians vote the same way in Australian politics, they're not voting Christianly. Because there's nothing particularly Christian about any of the political parties that we have operating in our land. And so Christians will be unhappy in all the parties and can be adhering to any of the parties. We have incredible adaptability and flexibility because we are not seeking to set up and impose a particular cultural pattern upon the world, but rather challenge all the cultural patterns that are there. You see, Christianity is about the change in the human heart that brings about change in society. And therefore, although it doesn't sound like much of a cultural threat, of course it's the greatest threat of all. For when you start to see individuals change so that they no longer will live in subservience to their nation or their culture or their family because they have a higher authority over the top of them, they are uncontrollable by governments and power systems and societies. And when a large number of them live in the land, they change the whole landscape because you have people who will not live accepting the totalitarian states, accepting the peer group pressure, accepting the rules that others lay. The kind of Christianity we're talking about here is Pharisaic Christianity. That is the kind that believes in another world, that believes in the resurrection of the dead, who believes in spirits and angels, who believes in another time, who knows that there is a judgment day coming and that Jesus died and rose again and knows that we too will rise and reign with him and that we're not answerable ultimately to the governments of this age, we're answerable ultimately to him. For here is the hope for which Paul is on trial. The Romans don't understand it, and they're going to be undermined by it over time. The Sadducees don't like it. But this is what Christians will live for, and this is what Christians will die for. And because we're the people who believe in something enough to die for it, we're the kinds of people who will change the society that we live in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Apostle Paul and his courage. We thank you, Father, for your spirit giving him the words to say when he was dragged before the courts and the council. We thank you, Father, for the revelation of yourself in the Gospel and in the Old Testament. We thank you, Father, that we can see the belief in the resurrection and the other age. We do pray, Father, to help us to so grasp the reality of the age to come that we might live in this world in the light of that world. 
and so stand firm, part of our society and yet able always to critique it because we belong to another society, part of this world but able to critique it because we belong to another world. And we pray this through the one who has gone ahead of us and who will come again to take us to be with himself, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.